Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Today on the Thames and Hudson podcast, we're exploring one of our most profound, enriching and unique human attributes, creativity. Creativity, imagination, invention, the ability to turn an idea into a reality defines humankind and human history. It sets us apart from other species. It builds bridges across cultures, time and space. It allows us to respond and adapt to new situations, to give shape to our innermost thoughts and feelings, and to consider the enormity of the universe. But creativity isn't always easy to come by. If you've ever considered a creative endeavor and become paralyzed by procrastination, a loss of inspiration, distraction, or the gnawing suspicion that you're just not that good, you're certainly not alone. In fact, doubts and difficulties are an integral part of any creative project. I'm Eliza Appley, and I'm joined on today's show by Richard Holman, an expert on the creative process. In his talks, workshops, and coaching sessions around the globe, Richard works with artists, writers, musicians, designers, directors, and makers, helping them develop their ideas and build creative confidence. He's seen firsthand how reliably bumps appear on the creative path, no matter if you're embarking on a first project or a legend in your industry. The trick, Richard says, is not to wish the blocks away, but to learn how to manoeuvre around them. Richard's book, Creative Demons and How to Slay Them, distills his learnings from the field. Like a travel guide for the creative journey, it combines scientific insights, practical advice, and inspirational examples from cultural history to help us better understand our imaginative obstacles and navigate our way to creative fulfillment. So Richard, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for making the time to talk today. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to be here. You forged this really interesting career, speaking, writing, and coaching people on the creative process. How did you get into this line of work? My background is in the branding and, and design of TV channels. So I did that for a number of years. I had an agency for about 10 years. But I found myself becoming more interested in the processes that went on behind making the work rather than the work itself. And I was invited to speak about creativity and ideas and that led to some coaching work. And then I started writing about it. And as is often the way I think with these things, it just kind of takes over incrementally. And now it's much more about helping other people feel more confident creatively themselves. And tell us more about the book. How did Creative Demons and How to Slay Them come to be? Well, you know, m most of us want to write a book, don't we? I think somewhere deep down, we feel there's a book lingering. And I'd written quite a few articles and I'd worked with 
a number of people and I, I, I was starting to accumulate a book's worth of material pretty much. And one of the reasons why I find doing what I do today rewarding is I think we need more creativity in our lives generally. We need, we need the ideas and the, and the innovation that will sustain us and the planet through the, the challenges that we all know about. We need art and culture and paintings and movies and books to help us make sense of this place we find ourselves in, in, in time and space. And, th and then there is just the really sort of pure elemental pleasure of bringing something into being that didn't exist. Um, and I think all of us benefit from that experience, really. It's one of, it's one of the, the purest things there is. For all those reasons, to try and make my own small contribution to um, helping people be more creative was kind of the, the genesis of the book. And I struggled a little with the title. You know, I, I knew I wanted to write about creativity, but the exact format I wasn't sure of. And then suddenly this title came into my head, Creative Demons and How to Slay Them. And that gave me the format and structure of the book. And, and hopefully is a, a reasonably compelling title too. So you identify this real need for creativity and a purity in creativity. But you also speak in the book to the unlearning of creativity. As children, we have this unfettered imagination and self-expression, but the older we become, the less artistic and creative we tend to feel. What do you think goes wrong? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, I, I think it was Picasso who talked about trying to, trying to regain the, the childlike creativity he had as a kid. I've got two boys of my own, 11 and 14 at the moment. So I've, I've watched their evolution from the, you know, from the time they, they first arrived. And what's really interesting to me is, is, is when kids are preschool, you know, before they're socialized, they've got this irresistible wave of creativity going on. You know, if you, if you put a pen and a piece of paper in front of them, you don't even need to tell them to draw, they will begin drawing and creating and making stuff. And as kids go through the schooling system and as their brains develop neurologically and as they become more socialized, that impulse is inhibited. And I don't think it goes away, but it's just kind of constricted. And, and it seems to me a real tragedy, you know, a, a terrible shame that people have this innate creativity, but sometimes life and, and, and concerns about what other people will think, lots of considerations which I talk about in the book kind of get in the way. I'd love to look a little closer now at those considerations, concerns, demons, because while many evolve, as you just alluded to, through socialization, I was struck by a distinction that emerges through your book between the demons that are internal, so the state of our minds, and the demons that are external, so the state of our circumstances. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. And in the book, I, I have 10 demons that I deal with. I begin with procrastination and I end with disappointment. And the thing is about the demons that some of them are kind of self-generated 
and some of them are the impositions of circumstance. Constraints is, is, is one of the demons I address and often those constraints are imposed upon us by, by real world situations. I had to write the book at the top of a staircase in the middle of a pandemic while I was trying to homeschool my children and the builders were redecorating the bathroom. So I know a little bit about constraints. So th there's kind of a mixed bag, you know, some come from within, some come from without. And the, re the really important thing is that I think the more we just battle them or deny them, the harder things become. And one of the themes I think of the book is that we have to accept the demons are gonna be around. And as I suspect we'll talk about, nobody is immune. You begin your book, as you mentioned, with the demon of procrastination, which seems especially apt given that procrastination is the first obstacle to even embarking on an imaginative creative project. How can we better understand this particular, and I would say very prevalent, demon? It's funny, though, that you ask this, because I began the book with procrastination, and of course, I, it took me ages to get round to writing that first chapter, you know? Uh, it's like, wow, okay, I've, I've got to write this book. And then I remember thinking, I'll start after Christmas. And then I was thinking, well, you know, maybe I'll wait till the weather perks up a little bit. And, and I found myself with each of the chapters experiencing the demon that I was writing about. So once I'd got that um, procrastination out of the way, then I had to deal with the blank page is the next one. And, um, and I remember when I was writing about doubt, I was thinking, is this book actually any good? Is this, you know? In answer to your question, I, I think procrastination isn't about laziness. If you explore where procrastination comes from, it comes from this sort of dark pool of fears within us. There is the fear that we are just not good enough. There's the fear that if we make something, the work will be rubbish. And there is the fear that the whole thing is just gonna be really, really difficult to do. And the sort of combination of these fears creates this concrete soup of intractability, where even laying down one word is a seemingly impossible thing to do. So that seems like a really important reframing to understand that procrastination is not just about sloth, it's about fundamental anxieties and fears that we may have. But how, do, how do we go about overcoming those fears? It's a good question. Well, I think regarding the first fear that we are no good, that we'll just be exposed as a talentless pretender. The really reassuring thing is as soon as you start to dig a little deeper into the lives of great artists and writers and musicians and directors, you see that this is kind of a universal experience. One of, one of my favorite quotes is from Michelangelo. Obviously Michelangelo is heralded as, as one of the great artists and his painting of the Sistine Chapel, one of the greatest artworks that, that Western civilization has ever produced. But in the middle of painting the Sistine Chapel, he wrote a poem to his friend. And in that poem, it says, my painting is dead. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. And you don't have to look too hard among your creative heroes to find a, a vein of, of self-doubt. It may be buried quite deep, it may be on the, on the surface. So I think once you, once you recognize 
that it's a thing that all artists have in common. And it's actually quite a good sign because if you, if you doubt yourself a little bit, it shows you've got the awareness and empathy and acuity you'll need to make something great. Then you sort of can overcome that. Re regarding the second fear of whether the work I produce will be rubbish, well, it probably won't be very good to begin with. And as soon as you accept that, it sort of takes the pressure off. But once you've made something, you'll be able to refine it and work on it. You'll have a thing. And, and a, a technique that I used to use in, in my previous life in, in design and branding, when we were having a brainstorm, was I, I used to say, well, what's the worst idea we can come up with for this brief? And as soon as you do that, it removes the pressure. And pressure is kind of anathema to, to creativity. And, th and then regarding the whole thing seeming really difficult, I think the most important thing is, is just to begin. And there's, there's a really nice quote by the writer E.L. Doktorov, who says, when you're making a car journey at night, you don't need to be able to see the whole route. You just need to see as far as your headlights go, and that's enough. And you can make the whole of the journey that way. And, um, and I, I encourage people in the book, there's that expression, seeing the wood for the trees. I say, don't, don't worry about seeing the wood for the trees. Don't even worry about the trees. Just pick one tree, get out close to it, and start there, and, uh, and the journey will flow. There are other demons in the book that draw not so much on, on anxieties, but more on the actual way that we are using our brain. And I was fascinated by these neuroscientific insights that you share in terms of the different parts of the brain, different ways of thinking. And when it comes to, to doubt, to looking for inspiration, a lot of that really does come down to brain work. Sure. One of the great things about writing about creativity at the moment is that our understanding of how the brain works in relation to creativity is becoming more and more profound. It's now thought among neuroscientists that there are, there are two principal modes of thought, and one is usually referred to as analytical thinking, and one as spontaneous or elastic thinking. Analytical thinking is the kind of thinking we do when we know we're thinking. So it's an active, conscious, top-down process. Spontaneous thinking is the, the thinking that goes on when we're not even aware that we're thinking. And it's a kind of much more unpredictable process where different regions of the brain network together in unusual ways. And the processing power of analytical thinking is, is relatively small. Analytical thinking can take you through your maths homework step by step. But for the blinding insights, the, the genius ideas, those, those real sort of flashes of inspiration which can set you on a path of making something really exciting, that's about spontaneous thinking. And it's spontaneous thinking happens in spite of ourselves, which is why you have insights. You know, you have that, you're in the shower and suddenly, bingo, that thought pops into your head or, or, or you wake up in the middle of the night. And so as an artist or a creator, it's really important in creating some time within your process to just step back, to step away from the, 
the problem that's on the page or step away from the canvas. And this can be a difficult thing to do, particularly on, your, on, a, on a deadline. But you, if you allow your, your brain the space to just work on the problem itself while you are mindfully distracted by walking or playing music, or in, or in my case, running, and very often that's where the, the really great insights come. So Einstein, when he got stuck, would pick up his violin and play the violin. Margaret Atwood more recently has talked about how walking leads to rumination, rumination leads to, to poetry. And there's a, there's a funny story I tell in the book about Leonardo da Vinci and, and the painting of The Last Supper. And he had been commissioned at great expense to, to paint the fresco on the wall of the church in Milan. And there was a lot of attention on this, uh, on this painting. And he, he, he would turn up every, every morning and stand and contemplate the wall of the church and then go off and, and wander around the garden and have a cup of coffee and, and just sort of, you know, muse. And the, the prior of the church reported this apparent dereliction of duty to the Duke who'd commissioned Leonardo. So the Duke summoned Leonardo to his castle and said, Leonardo, what's, what's going on here? You know, you're a great artist. I've paid you a lot of money, but my, my church wall is still unpainted. And Leonardo looked him in the eye and said, those of lofty genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least which silenced the Duke. And, and, and so the thrust of it really is that I think when we, when we are under a deadline or we're feeling a lot of pressure to be creative, that is actually um, when it's hardest for us to be creative. And the more, you, the more you pressure yourself, the more you hammer at it, the less likely you are to have a successful outcome. You need to step back. My guess is that stepping back, taking that walk, uh, allowing that, non-analytical that elastic part of the brain to do its to do its genius creative work is all the more difficult in our device-led lives and I wondered how you see the role of digital technology in maybe in some ways enabling our creativity but also compromising it yeah I I I, I, I see the good and the bad you know, um, I see the good and the bad certainly um, allows us, you know, to engage with a lot more culture and creativity than we could previously. It's, it's much easier for me to sit down and think of a movie that I'd like to watch from anywhere at any time and, 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 and summon it up. And it's be technology has, has given us tools to allow us to, to, to make things without the, the budgets and the the, the gear that we needed before, but it, it, it comes at a neurological cost, I think, which is that the brain is, the brain is extremely plastic. You know, our, our behavior comes to define how our brains work and our always on digital lives means, means that our, our brains are kind of stimulated constantly with these little fizzes and buzzes and hits. You know, the, there is the cortisol, the stress of, of reading yet another terrible news story. And then there's the little lift we get when we get likes on our, on our Facebook feeds. And it, it sti overstimulates the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is the kind of brain's executive center. And it's, it, it's great at sort of organizing things, but it's not so good at allowing creativity to take place. 
And it's, it's very important when it comes to evaluating ideas, but not so good for, for generating them. So I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I think um, one, if one is seeking to be creative, one needs to take some time to, to step away from, from the devices um, because it's only then that your brain has the, the room and the space to, to allow the really good stuff to bubble up. You talked earlier about other obstacles to, to room and space, so real constraints that we might be working with. And you mentioned your own experience writing the book in lockdown, also homeschooling and having some building work done, I think you said. How, how can we best channel and enable creativity even when there are really quite confined and compromising conditions around us? It's, it's a good question. And I think it's easy when you're in a situation like I was in writing the book to imagine that with all these limitations removed, the process would be easier. But experience tells us from both scientific research and anecdotal evidence that the fewer constraints we have, the more open the brief is, the more wide the possibilities, actually the harder it is to be creative. And I think that um, when one is faced with constraints, the, the, the best thing you can do sometimes is, is not to go sort of head to head with them, you know, to, to, to battle them, but, to, but to, to channel the spirit of Aikido, which I talk about. And in Aikido, the martial art, it's not about aggressors, but it's about channeling the energy. And sometimes the constraints can push us to be more creative, to push us into a more interesting direction than we might otherwise have arrived at without them. So one of my favorite examples is from um, a photographer whose name is Jackie Kenny. And I first came across her work on, on Instagram and they are um, landscape images, really beautiful landscape images. They're, they're kind of spacious and they've got this kind of pastel palette and they're from all over the world, uh, from America, China, Russia, Senegal, everywhere you can think of. And I saw this feed of images and I thought, wow, these, these, are, these are really beautiful. And I, I went to follow the account and it, the, the handle of the account is the agrophobic traveler. And I, I read a little bit more about Jackie and, and, and Jackie has the anxiety disorder, agoraphobia, which means she's unable to leave the house sometimes. She loves photography and she loves to travel when she's able. But during a period where she couldn't travel, she started exploring the world on Google Street View. And because she has a photographer's eye, when she saw a, a frame that, that just felt compositionally right, she would screen grab it. And after a while, a friend of hers said, these are great, you should do something with them. She now has about 150,000 followers on, on Instagram and, and she's shown her work all over the world. And I think it's a really lovely example of, 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 of not giving up in the face of constraints or, 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 or getting cross or angry, but just, just flowing and, and, and working with them. And it's, it's really interesting to me that often over the career of a, an artist or a maker, they will come to impose constraints on themselves. You know, you often see painters work with a, a more limited 
palette um, and a more restricted frame and, 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 and writers become more, more single-minded in their ambition the, the older they become. And so having fewer tools and fewer opportunities is not always a bad thing. That's so revealing and chimes too, I think, with, with another experience of creative endeavor in lockdown, namely having too much space and time. Obviously, everyone's experience has been individual, but for those who were not homeschooling, who were perhaps not working, who found themselves with empty, unstructured days, evenings, weekends, confined at home, there was a sense or, or hope that this might be the most creatively productive period of their adult lives. But in the end, many felt less creative than ever. And of course, the stress and the strain and the struggle of the pandemic certainly didn't help. But was part of the problem in that scenario a lack of constraint? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, one of the difficulties I have encountered with the people that I coach is the ambient stress of the pandemic. Referring back to the things we talked about regarding how our brains work, it's, it's difficult in, when there is this sort of low-level stress to make anything. But I, th I think um, one of the challenges with that situation you talk about is it, during, during, during lockdown, people went, right, okay, I've got this extra time, I'm not commuting anymore, and uh, maybe people were not working anymore. Now is the time for me to write my novel. And immediately you've got a problem there because if you seek to write a novel, and that's what you sit down at your desk to do. And the whole thing just seems too overwhelming. You know, it's, it, it's too big for any of us. And I often encourage people to start really small, you know, to start as, as small as they can. Sometimes just a simple daily practice of taking a photograph at the same time every day. You know, you set an alarm on your phone and wherever you are and whatever you see, you, you click there. Or, or with writing, just to start with describing a single character and 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 see where it takes you. And and I think the the smaller the smaller the first step we have to take, the the easier that 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 step is to to take. So I I, I think that was probably a, a another issue as well. You know, that makes a lot of sense. So starting with small, exploratory, open-minded first steps, rather than setting out with some predetermined grand idea. Yeah, and, and another important point about this, I think, is that the, the real joy of the creative process is, is you don't know where it's going to take you, you know? And when creativity is going really well, Maybe some people listening have, have been lucky enough to experience this state of flow. The term flow was called, coined by uh, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. You know, the, 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 the writing, the, the, the writing writes itself. You know, the, the painting appears on the canvas in spite of you. You know, the tune seems to come through you. And, and, and that's a really beautiful thing. And that, that's as good as it gets. Um, and often 
those creatives and writers and artists we admire build this accident into the process. So Maggie Hamlin, the British abstract artist, is something of an insomniac and often finds herself waking up very early. So she'll go into a studio straight out of bed. So when, when she's still in that beautiful sort of nowhere liminal space between waking and sleeping and she has a, she'll have set out a, a blank piece of paper and, and an ink dropper on a studio desk and she's right-handed and so with her left hand she takes the ink dropper and closes her eyes and, and makes an image on the paper um, sometimes thinking about what she's dreamt uh, over the course of the night and she does these drawings and then she goes off has a breakfast because she's Maggie Hamlin she probably smokes a packet of cigarettes and then, and, and then she comes back and she looks at them and, and those those abstract images that have been formed without the prefrontal cortex getting in the way often become the basis for paintings and drawings that she does later on. The Norwegian novelist Karl Ove Nausgaard says his writing technique is to just pick a word, simple word like orange or tooth, and he says, right, I'm going to pick that word, I'm going to write about it. And he has no idea what he's going to write, but he just lets himself go. And, and these techniques are a really great way of enabling the residual the creativity within us that we sometimes we don't even know is there to 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 come to the to come to the fore it's not a it's not a it's not a conscious cognitive process it's, it's something subtler and and one of my creative heroes who i talk about a lot partly because i think she doesn't get the recognition she deserves is sister carita kent who is um was she's no longer with us but she was a nun uh, in um in Los Angeles. She, she, she was at a convent, which is now Katy Perry's house somewhere in, in, in Los Angeles. And, um, and Carita was a brilliant artist herself. And the convent had a, had a big art room and she, she, um, she really got in a groove while she was there and, and became quite famous um, for these really beautiful big, bold, colourful graphic screen prints that are so far away from, from what you would expect a, a nun to do. And she became a teacher of creativity. There's, uh, she's written, there's some, some great books by her on the process. And one of her rules, which I've got hanging on my, she had a 10 art department rules and on, on the wall up here, I've got, um, I've got them hanging. And rule number eight is don't try to create and analyse at the same time, they're different processes. And this, this to me is a, a really important point. So you can't have one without the other, but generally speaking, people analyze too soon. So they'll, they'll write a sentence and go, is that sentence any good? And they go, ah, maybe not. And they go back, cross it out and write another sentence. And they never get past that first sentence. And the trick I think is, is to make without thinking of quality at all, to be as carefree as you can until the thing is down. And then once it's down, maybe when you've taken a bit of time away from it, you come back and, and then you evaluate, you know, you, you switch on your conscious thinking. You think, right, okay, what's working? What's less successful? Which are the bits that feel truest to what I'm trying to say? Which are the bits that feel a bit clunky? What can I take away to make it stronger and, 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 and more focused? 
Um, so yeah, we, we could all do with a bit more Karita Kent in our lives, I think. And she, she's wonderful. If, if, if listeners haven't seen her artwork, it's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. There's definitely something so comforting and encouraging about all of the anecdotes you include in the book and all of these fulfilled creatives, including some of our most fated cultural luminaries that have battled with the demons of convention or procrastination or doubt or the blank page. But I also wanted to ask you about the demons of criticism and disappointment because, of course, not every creative ends up enjoying a large audience. How do you frame success in relation to creativity? It's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, how, how do we frame success in relation to creativity? And to make a work of art is most of the time to create something for an audience. You make a painting to be seen, you make a piece of music to be heard, and you make a book to be read. And so inevitably we form some of our judgment on the success of that artwork by the response it receives in the, in the real world. Yet when you look at the history of works of art that we now judge to be among the greatest ever made and how they were received at the time they were made. You see this real disconnect between critical opinion sometimes and, and, and public opinion. Most famously was the fact that Van Gogh only ever sold one painting in his lifetime. The, the Beatles were rejected by Decca because guitar groups are on their way out. There are, there are all manner of, of, of illustrations, really, where, where people got it wrong. So while I think it's important for us to, to see how our work is responded to in, in the real world and to enjoy it when it's well received and, and you know, awards and plaudits and shows come, it's important not to get too carried away with it. And I, and I think fundamentally the only person who can judge the merit of your work is, is you because you yourself know what it was that ignited that spark, that made you want to create this thing. And you yourself know how true you've been to the expression of that thing. And you know how narrow or how wide the gap is between what's in your imagination and the execution on the page. So, so I, I think probably that's, that's one way to to think about criticism, to to listen, but but not too carefully, and really to just listen to yourself. You know, there's a lovely quote by Dr. Zeus: "Today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you." And I quote that in the book because I think it's it's a really nice thing. But each of us, you know, this is the great thing that each of us is is different. You know, we're we're, we're all individuals, and we all bring our our own narrative and experience and perspective to any work of art we make. Well, Richard, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But I, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us and for sharing so much insight and advice and inspiration on the creative path, on, on the bumps and demons along the way and how to manoeuvre 
around them and just as importantly how to hold true to the integral humanity of making things and ultimately to ourselves. So thank you again for the really inspiring conversation. You're really welcome. It's been a real pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. So I've enjoyed myself too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 